You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We've looked at the three major views on how the covenants fit together. We first highlighted dispensational theology. Dispensational theology is a distinctive way in which God manages or arranges the relationship of human beings to himself. Each dispensation is a time of testing for mankind to be faithful to particular revelation given. We talked already about some of the different dispensations uh, that the dispensationalists believe in. We said that ultimately kind of their defining characteristic is that they do believe that the church and Israel are distinctly separate. Separate peoples of God that God has separate purposes for. They seek to take the Bible extremely literally. And so they believe that uh, eventually Israel will end up back in the land, that eventually Israel will be making sacrifices once again in a temple. They believe that those things will be fulfilled in the future literally. That's a distinguishing uh, belief, a distinguishing fact about dispensational theology. Then we looked at covenant theology. Covenant theology is a framework for understanding the overarching storyline of the Bible, which emphasizes that God's redemptive plan and his dealings with mankind are, without exception, worked out in accordance with the covenants that he has sovereignly established. Now, a big thing with covenant theology is that they see the old and the new covenant as being uh, almost the same. They see a, a great continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. It's what leads them to infant baptism. That because circumcision was a sign of being born into the covenant community, that translates over into the new covenant. That there's great continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. Covenant theology holds that the Mosaic law can be divided into three groups. And we talked about this already, that uh, the Old Testament law can be divided into the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. That there are Things that were specific for Israel because they were a nation. But then there's also the moral law that works in that. This kind of a timeless uh, instruction from God to us. And so for covenant theology, they would say that in the New Testament, we don't keep the ceremonial law. We don't keep the civil laws, but we do keep the moral laws. We said also that... Uh, Covenant theology believes that the church existed in the Old Testament and that the Holy Spirit indwelt believers the same way as he does today, back in the Old Testament. Then we highlighted New Covenant theology. We said that New Covenant theology is kind of the, the Baptist perspective on covenant theology. So what you get in New Covenant theology is the no baptizing of infants. New Covenant theology sees discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That yes, in the Old Covenant... We, we circumcised uh, the male boys as a sign that they were part of the believing community. But in the new covenant, it's not based on who your parents are. That it's based on you being born of the Spirit. It's based on an inward working of the Holy Spirit. So there's not that need for an outward sign for your children until they make that profession of faith. That's a, that's a big point of new covenant theology, that we don't baptize infants because the new covenant is different than the old covenant. It also sees the law of Moses as being fulfilled in Christ, that it's not something that we can divide up. That if Christ came to fulfill the law, he came to fulfill the law. And so for the New Covenant theologian, we don't look back to the Old Testament to get our instruction about how to live. Instead, we look to the New Testament, the law of Christ. Now, I told you that it's, it's a matter of semantics to some degree because we end up keeping the same 
commands that the covenant theologian does. Covenant theologian says, hey, everything's been fulfilled except for the moral law. The new covenant theologian says, nope, the entire Old Testament law has been fulfilled, and now Christ gives us the moral law to now respond to him in obedience with. So it's a matter of semantics as far as uh, how we explain it, how we see it in relation to covenant. Ultimately, the result is, is pretty much the same. But it does simplify why, you know, I told you I got a kid that comes to me in my sixth grade Bible class and says, um, Mr. Vincent, why do we do this and not do this in the Old Testament? Why do we do some things that the Old Testament law says and why do we not do other things? Instead of me having to try to break up the law in a way that Scripture doesn't necessarily do, it allows us to accurately explain that we, as the New Covenant people of God in the New Testament, we fulfill, we do what Christ has commanded us to do. Essentially those things that are reiterated in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Those are the three major frameworks for how to understand covenant. Dispensational, covenant, new covenant. We said ultimately we want our understanding of covenant in whichever group you end up falling into to lead us to worship. That ultimately we want to see that man fails to keep the covenant with God. And that ultimately God has to send Christ to fulfill our obligations. And so God keeps his portion. He keeps his end of the bargain. And he also keeps our end of the bargain by sending Christ to be the fulfillment of all the covenants that he gives. We also want it to lead us to assurance that God gives covenant not for himself. He's going to do what he intends to do, but he gives us covenant. He gives us promises so that we can expect him to do what he intends to do. He doesn't need to make promises so that he's held to them. He intends to do what he intends to do. The promises, the covenants that are given in Scripture are meant to assure us that God will do what he intends to do. It's his way of specially revealing to us his plan. His plan for now, his plan for the future, it gives us assurance. It's when Abraham says, God, how do I know you're going to do this? And God enters into covenant with Abraham so that he will know that he will do this. We said that ultimately that I lean towards New Covenant theology. There's some areas that I disagree with New Covenant theology on, specifically on their understandings of the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. And we looked at those covenants last week. The covenant of redemption is what we understand the Trinity entered into before the foundation of the world. That the Father determined to save mankind. That the Son committed to be the instrument used to save mankind. That he would come and be the guarantor of that covenant. That the Spirit entered into that relationship as being the one who applies the work of Christ to us. This was worked out in, in time past before, before Adam and Eve were created. The Trinity is it's revealed to us in Scripture. The Trinity had a plan in place, meaning that that Christ is not plan B in response to Adam's failure. That God didn't create a world where he anticipated that Adam would obey and everything would be made right through Adam. That, that it was always the intent to slay the lamb. That it was always the intent for Christ to come as our redeemer. We call that the covenant of redemption. The promise made within the relationship of the Trinity. That this is how it would work out. That this is how the Trinity would be glorified by saving mankind. We said the covenant of works is the covenant that God enters into with Adam and Eve in the garden. That in creating Adam and Eve, he gives them instruction. That they are to be fruitful. They are to multiply. They are to have dominion over this earth. And they are not to eat of the knowledge of good and evil. 
We said that we have to speculate a little bit, but the implication seems to be had Adam, had Adam been obedient for a set period of time, like a probationary period, he would have earned righteousness. In the same way that Christ came and was obedient for 33 years to the law and he earned righteousness, had Adam been able to be obedient for a set amount of time, which we're not told how long that would have been, he would have been glorified in a sense. And he would have produced offspring that were now perfect. In the same way that he now instead produces offspring that are sinful by nature. The implication was if you obey, you'll receive life. If you disobey, you and your your descendants will receive death. We know that Adam breaks the covenant of works and condemns mankind. But praise be to God that Genesis 3.15 exists. That God instituted the covenant of grace, where he says, I will send one who will eventually defeat the serpent. I will send someone from the seed of Eve who will rescue mankind back to me. The promise of redemption and eternal life to those believing in a coming redeemer. The requirement of perfect obedience is not annulled but grace by grace, but rather fulfilled by Christ on behalf of his people. So ultimately, Christ is sent as that seed of Eve to earn perfect obedience for us. The promise of a bone-crushing Savior who would bash the head of the serpent and deliver men and women from sin and Satan's bondage. Now, Sarah was asking me last week, how does this, how does this relate to the angels? Why don't the angels have the same type of opportunity for coming back to Christ? They made a decision to leave. Why don't they have that same opportunity? We're not instructed in Scripture as to why mankind has a plan of salvation and the angels don't. We, we can speculate, and my speculation is, is that all the angels were present when the decision was made. There was no representative for the angels. Angels don't procreate and, and reproduce where there's now angels that weren't there when that decision was made to follow Satan. So they're all held accountable for that decision they made. And they will be judged eternally for that decision when they abandoned heaven and followed Satan. For us, we were represented through headship, through Adam. And God graciously, while we experience the consequences of Adam's choice, God graciously rescues us from those consequences. So ultimately, Satan wins what he thinks he wins a war in heaven when he's able to deceive a third of the angels to follow him. Now he comes to earth and he wants to wreak havoc and wreck God's plans on earth. From his perspective, he's winning the battle. And now he deceives God's creation, the ones that he's created in his image. He's deceived them into following him, just like he deceived the angels. So in Satan's mind, another victory. They'll be banished. They will procreate. They will produce offspring for me. And eventually I will take my place in heaven. Eventually I will take control from Yahweh. And yet what God communicates in Genesis 3.15 is so important because he's communicating to the serpent. He's communicating to Satan. This little change that's happened right here, it's not forever. That I'm going to send someone who will rescue mankind back to me. Who will turn the tables once again. Where mankind will come back to me. Where the victory will be won in the future. And so it's been playing out since the Garden of Eden. A delayed victory. Victory pronounced in the garden, but a victory that's not realized until Christ comes the second time. And Satan is ultimately going to see God continue to get glory as he loses individuals daily responding to the gospel, returning to their creator. 
So we see covenant of redemption. Trinity plans to save mankind. Covenant of works. We fail to be obedient. We're now condemned to death. But God brings the covenant of grace. And we see the covenant of grace play out in individual little covenants. And that's what we want to look at today. Specifically those that are contained for us in the Old Testament. So we'll start with the Noahic covenant today. The Noahic covenant. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We'll start reading in verse 1. The first covenant that we see that comes out of the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve have been banished. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I'm sorry that I've made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Let's get down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring floods of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Down in verse 22. Now Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The Noahic covenant, God promises to withhold judgment until the end. What we see come out of the Noahic covenant is God promising to withhold judgment until the end. Some of the key passages, Genesis 6, 1 through 22, which we've just looked at. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 8 now in verse 20. We'll read that in just a minute. The covenant need to preserve mankind from an extreme level of wickedness. To preserve mankind from an extreme level of wickedness. We see God describe the, the, the culture of that time as being extremely wicked, corrupt, and violent. Those two words are used over and over to describe the condition of man, corrupt and violent. We also have this weird uh, kind of account thrown in here that sounds kind of like a, a teenage uh, 
romantic type movie with angels potentially and, and mankind uniting together sexually. I mean, you, you see movies like this today and it sounds like, man, like what's going on here? There's a lot of speculation about who these sons of God are and who these daughters of men are that are coming together sexually. What we do know for sure is that the act of multiplication, the be fruitful and multiply, the command to do that has gone awry. Whatever God had intended to happen is not happening. And it's an intense evil that causes him to deal with it swiftly. Now, some speculate that these are godly men, godly descendants of Seth, that are taking ungodly women to be their spouses. That's possible, but maybe not probable from the sense of it doesn't seem like that would garner such anger and wrath for godly individuals to be marrying ungodly individuals to this extreme. Now, it's possible we see that God instructs that, that as believers we have a responsibility not to marry with unbelievers, that light can't have fellowship with darkness. But the natural reading probably would be to take the sons of God in the way that it's used predominantly in Scripture in the Old Testament as angelic beings. We see this same phrase used in Job chapter 1, verse 6. When the sons of God are presenting themselves in heaven, that's where we see Satan begin to dialogue with God. In studying this in my lifetime, my perspective is that in some way this is demonic influence on human beings sexually. Now, whether this is actually angels becoming physical beings and engaging in this act, or if it's simply them possessing individuals and acting it out through uh, humankind, there's something intensely evil happening here. Now, again, we're not clued into a whole lot of what this means and what the implications were. We do have a little bit of stuff discussed in the New Testament uh, that we'll discuss in a minute uh, as far as some of this maybe being referenced back to exactly what was going on there. What we do see is the same steps being um, taken that we saw in the garden. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, they, they saw the tree, it was attractive to them, and they took it. We see that same language here in Genesis chapter 6. As the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were attractive, and they took whatever they chose. That same step where, where there's not submission to God's authority, it's acting outside of what God has commanded and, and doing things that look good to you. Doing things that, that the sinful nature desires. That's what we see play out here. It played out with Adam and Eve. They saw something. They desired it with the eyes. They took it. Same thing plays out here that ultimately leads to God bringing judgment through the flood. The flood is sent to limit the progression of wickedness. Now, in your notes, the parties that are involved in the Noahic covenant, there's God, Noah, his offspring, and all living things. God, Noah, Noah's offspring, and all living things. And Noah's offspring would be all of us as we could all trace our family history back to Noah. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after the flood now. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground. And all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. That is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. The promise that's given in this covenant is that he will never flood the earth again. And he's also promising within that to preserve creation. Don't just limit it to, I'm never going to destroy the earth with water again. He also, he also promises, I'm going to allow the seasons to continue. There's going to be cold. There's going to be hot. There's going to be day. There's going to be night. We don't have to fear some of the things that we hear about how our environment's changing as though we're going to be consumed because the ozone is falling. We're losing our seasons. That we're going to be consumed by global warming and it's not going to be cold anywhere on our earth again. We hear the stats that come out, but we can trust with this covenant that was established with creation, all of Noah's offspring, all living creatures, I will not flood the earth again. And until, as long as the earth remains, there will be seasons, there will be day, there will be night. I will preserve creation. Now, we know that it's implied there that there is coming a day when the earth will not continue. That when Christ does return, he will destroy this earth. He will recreate this earth. New heavens and new earth. That he will bring judgment, not with water, but with fire. But until that day, and not before, until that day and not before, God will preserve his creation. The sign is the rainbow. Now, we use it as cutesy little purposes on stationery and magnets, and, and, and it's, it's kind of a, a girl thing. You know, you wouldn't want to be a guy with, with a rainbow trapper keeper at school, right? Like, you'd be kind of like, eh, it's not for us. But really, for us guys, like, this bow is a sign of, of war. It's the archer's bow, and it's put into the, the sky as a sign of peace that I'm not bringing wrath like I could. I'm not bringing wrath like I should. 
And one commentator even said that it's important to notice that the bow points up and not down. That eventually that wrath would be poured out on Christ and not on us. It's a sign of peace that God gives to his creation. The expectations now for Noah and his family is to replenish the earth and to not kill each other. God says, don't kill each other. If you do, like your life deserves to be taken. That life is special. That life is sacred. What's the, what's, the, what's the bearing for us with this covenant? How does this relate to us? Beyond just the assurance of protection that we don't have to fear movies that talk about comets coming and destroying our earth. Beyond just the simple act of, of hey, we're protected, like God's going to keep this earth intact. There's also the relation to us that the earth is preserved for gospel harvest. That the earth is preserved for gospel harvest, that until Christ returns, this earth will continue. That God will not bring mass judgment upon the entire earth. That we have opportunities to expand the gospel. That the earth is preserved for a gospel harvest. Now there's some ways that grace is shown in this. We talk about this being part of the covenant of grace. I want to give you some, some ways that grace is shown. First, grace is shown in that salvation was offered to the people on the earth at that time. Before the flood, salvation was offered to these people. In 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 10 and 11 of 1 Peter chapter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. We know that in the Old Testament the prophets proclaimed Christ. They proclaimed the coming Messiah. Salvation was offered to these people before the flood came. In 1 Peter 3.19 these are some of the passages that refer back to some of the things going off and going on in here. Verse 18 of chapter 3 in 1 Peter. This is a confusing passage at times for some people. Um, I think when you understand what it's trying to say, it makes perfect sense, though. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Who is, who is being preached to here? Who's being preached to here? The, the word that, that's used here for Christ, or for Christ proclaiming to the spirits in prison is a word that would be uh, similar to our word for preach. Now, some people want to speculate and say, okay, once Jesus died on the cross, he went to hell and preached to people in hell and gave them a second opportunity that he preached to these people specifically that were in the times of Noah, either to uh, rub it in that he had come to defeat sin or to possibly offer them a, a second opportunity for salvation. I think it's better to understand that through Noah, Christ preached to these people that are now in prison for their sin. That prior to their judgment, through Noah, it was preached to them by Christ. The reason I would say that is because in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. That word for herald is the same word for Christ proclaiming to the spirits in prison. It's the same, it's the same Greek word. It would be that word for preach. So what it's saying is, is if God... Uh, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Well, he had to have somebody to preach to. Most likely those people that are in prison now, that, that Christ proclaimed truth to, using Noah as his instrument for that. So we see a covenant of grace here in the sense that God preached salvation to these individuals before he brought judgment. Secondly, Grace is shown in that God limits the wicked behavior of Satan and his demons. He limits the behavior, the wicked behavior of Satan and his demons. While Satan is given opportunity to do things on, on this earth, he's ultimately submitted to Christ. Jude, uh, Jude verse 6, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Some people would speculate that these passages that talk about angels being in chains, being in hell, being in darkness, are the demons that were guilty of this act with these women, that that they are specifically judged for that sin. If that's the case, then ultimately we see God's grace in that Satan is not allowed to just do whatever he wants. He's not allowed to just wreck creation in how he wants to. God uses him for his glory, and God withholds him and his plans when he wants to. When he wants to. He keeps these, these angels and these women from coming together in a way that was sinful and wicked and evil. He stops it. He judges it. And he restarts everything. We see God's grace. God's grace is shown in that God seeks to calm the fears of man concerning how God will deal with him moving forward. He promises a stable world where the plan of redemption can proceed. I mean, think about Noah and his family. I mean, you, you get off the ark. You've just seen massive wrath poured out. You step out and you're kind of wondering, I mean, what, what are we going to do that potentially brings something like this again? Like, should we live in fear that one wrong step, one mistake, and all of a sudden it's going to start pouring again, and it ain't going to stop. There would have been some uncertainty, some uneasiness potentially, and God immediately as they come out of the ark, again, he doesn't make covenants for himself, he makes covenants for us and our assurance. He assures his, his people that he's brought out of the ark. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about this. Grace is also shown in that God declines his cosmic right to destroy every generation with a flood. Back in Genesis chapter 8, I believe. Verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God's not saying that what I just did fixed everything. He's saying I would have the right to do this every generation because man's evil intent starts from his youth. Starts from his youth. I could, I could be justified in doing this to every generation. He says, I'm making the choice because of grace to not bring judgment in this way on this earth again. I have every right to because man is evil enough to deserve this. And yet I'm choosing not to. Grace is also shown in that he helps us to subdue the earth. He talks about the animals now fearing mankind. 
which for the most part is great that it, it, it protects us when, when we're trying to uh, gather food for our family, when we try to hunt deer or fish. It's, it's unfortunate that animals do fear us. They run away from us. But for the most part, it is helpful in subduing this earth that animals are feel fearful of us, that we're at the top of the food chain, that God graciously allows us to subdue this earth in the fact that animals fear us. It protects us. So we see God's grace. The summary for this covenant that I want you to understand is that Noah points to a greater second Adam. Noah points to a greater second Adam. If you go through the account of, of how this flood plays out, it, it's very similar language to the creation account. You remember in creation that the world started with water everywhere and that God had to bring up the dry ground. He had to bring the plants and animals. Things began to sprout and grow in the days of creation. You have a very similar type layout as, as, as Noah and his family are on the ark. The waters covered the earth. Dry land comes about. Plants and trees begin to sprout. You have the makings of a second Adam with Noah. And yet we see Noah fail. Noah, not too long after this covenant's made, he immediately falls into sin. He partakes of fruit from a vineyard, much like Adam partaking of fruit from a garden. He gets drunk. He gets naked. Just like Adam, completely exposed in his nakedness. We see the second Adam, the first second Adam, Noah, fail. What it communicates to us is that what we need is not a restart. See, we could, we could potentially fall into the trap of thinking, well, what we really need is to just start over. Like Adam and Eve got it wrong. Maybe if we could just start over with a man and a woman, we'd get it right this time. I think God anticipates that thought process and gives us that restart and shows how within just a few amount of years, Noah's descendants, like if we could just start over with a Christian family, with Christian values, teaching their Christian values to their children, we could control this world the right way. Everybody would be Christians. So God gives us a Christian family with Christian children. And within years, the Tower of Babel is being constructed. Hey, let's be like God. Let's get to God. Let's take over God. The restart's not what we need. We need a better second Adam than Noah. It points to Christ. The Noahic covenant. It's not just about rainbows. It's not just about God not flooding the earth again. It's about him preserving creation. And it's about him showing us that we need Christ not just any Christian man and woman to restart everything. The Noahic covenant. Secondly, the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, God promises eternal life through faith. God promises eternal life through faith. Now the key passages, and we won't take the time to look at all these, but Genesis 12, 15, and 17 these are passages where the Abrahamic covenant is discussed in detail. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why does God make this covenant? Why does God feel the need to make this covenant. We said that the Noahic covenant was to preserve mankind from an extreme level of wickedness. He brings judgment. He starts things over to protect us from where the world was going. Here, 
the covenant need is to establish a human line for the Messiah. God's plan starts to get rolling here. God's plan starts to get rolling. We've had tragedy in the garden. We've had tragedy from Adam and Eve's descendants. We've had tragedy from Noah's descendants. There hasn't been a lot of good news flowing out of heaven. been a lot of silence. We've been communicated in Genesis 3.15. There's someone coming who will defeat the serpent, but all we've seen from Eve is bad. And now God steps into history once again and calls this man Abram out, not because of his righteousness, not because of anything that he has done to earn this or deserve this. He calls him out. says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to bless this entire world. Because you're going to be the physical line that the Messiah comes from. I'm going to bless the nations through you by sending the Messiah through you. That's the covenant need here. That's why God establishes this covenant. He needs a human line to bring the Messiah through. Again, God doesn't have to come down and communicate this. Christ could have easily descended from Abraham and his people. But God chooses to specially reveal this to increase anticipation for the Messiah. To to reveal the plan that he's already got rolling from his perspective. He's revealing that to us graciously. It takes 25 years for Abraham to have Isaac. Talk about a little bit of a waiting period. He's already old. He's already thinking, I missed my opportunity to have a child. 25 years later, God gives him his child of promise. Abraham's faith was tested along the way. Instead of commanding Abraham to be fruitful, God promises to make him fruitful. This is a change. Adam and Eve, go be fruitful. Noah and your family, go be fruitful. But in Genesis chapter 17, God changes it now. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. God says, I'm going to do this because you're physically unable to do this. You're, you're physically done with having children. You didn't have any. Now I'm going to step in. I'm going to receive the glory for this. You don't have anything to offer. You're, you're, you're retired. You, you've missed your prime. But I'm going to step in and I'm going to bless you and bless the world through you. God receives the glory for what he does through Abraham. The parties involved are God, Abraham, and his spiritual offspring in your notes. God, Abraham, and spiritual offspring. The promise is land, offspring, and universal blessing. The parties are God, Abraham, spiritual offspring. The promise is land, offspring, universal blessing. The sign is circumcision. God makes circumcision the sign of this covenant. The expectation placed on Abraham and his descendants is faith. Faith. How this relates to us, we are offspring of Abraham and we receive promises through faith. We are the offspring of Abraham, and we receive promises through faith. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather those who, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The New Testament communicates to us that it's not about coming from the physical line of Abraham to be the true offspring of Abraham. That it's the spiritual offspring, those that that are uh, reproduced in faith, the way that Abraham demonstrated faith. Those that, that have faith are considered the offspring of Abraham. So this covenant is very important to us because it applies to us. It applies to us because the New Testament tells us we are the true offspring of Abraham. Now, Jewish people who respond in faith, they too are the true offspring of Abraham. But Jesus regularly communicates to them, do not claim that just because you come from Abraham that you're okay. That your nationality does not save you. Christ communicates that it's the faith that makes you genuine offspring of Abraham. Circumcision is now seen as an inward reality. And we'll look more at this as we look at the new covenant and its implications for us, but we see circumcision now as an inward reality in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We see some grace in this covenant. First, grace is shown in that God's blessing is not only for one ethnic people. God could have easily chosen to save Jewish people and Jewish people only. That could have been the plan of redemption. God doesn't owe us salvation. God doesn't owe us the opportunity for salvation. Trinity could have gotten together before time began. So here's what's going to happen. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick one man. We're going to save everybody that comes from him physically. And that's all we're going to save. That could have been the plan. But thankfully, Galatians chapter 3 communicates something differently to us. Verse 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I don't see how you could, I don't see how you could miss this. And this is where I struggle with people who see Israel and the church being so distinctly separate. Because all I see in the New Testament is the bridging of the gap that we are one. That we are one offspring of Abraham by faith. That God has, has grafted us together into one people. And it's communicated here. It's not just for ethnic Israel. That God's blessings and promises are not just for the physical descendants of Abraham. That the gospel was preached to Abraham because he knew, God knew that he would save the Gentiles by faith. And so he promised to bless all nations through Abraham. Grace is shown in that God works throughout, his, throughout the history of Israel to maintain this covenant. What you see throughout the Old Testament, and we've looked at this before, so I don't want to go through it again. But this, this covenant is so important because it's a continued promise about the Messiah, and it's a promise that he has to come from Abraham. So if Abraham's physical line ever gets cut off, we lose the Messiah. Because God's promised it that way. It has to come from Abraham's physical line. So if we ever lose the nation of Israel, we lose our hope for the Messiah. That's what makes the the Old Testament have such 
such interest to us. As we see these stories play out, it's God's faithfulness to preserve this covenant when he protects Israel. I've told you before, praise be to God because he's protecting my salvation. Every time he saves the children of Israel from their enemies, he's protecting my salvation because if they get lost, if they get banished to Babylon and never come back home, they intermarry with all these people and we don't have a line of Abraham anymore. And there's no Messiah. If you read the Old Testament in the context of Christ and his coming, it makes the stories come alive in a different way. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about the covenant that's been promised by, by God. In Genesis 47, 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. You'll remember, children of Israel end up in Egypt because of the famine. That's all God's plan. Joseph says that you sold me into slavery thinking it was for your good. It was actually for all our good. Because I needed to be here to save us from this famine. Because if I'm not here, we all die and there's no Messiah. So Joseph sent to Egypt. Looks like a bad thing. God uses it for his glory and for the good of his children. Joseph saves everybody, puts food away. All of uh, his descendants come and they live in Goshen. And the Bible says they start growing and multiplying like greatly. It's God's sovereignty to put them in Egypt. Egypt is a massive world power at this time. What better place to grow a new nation under the umbrella of protection from Egypt? If, if Abraham's descendants are out in, in Canaan by themselves, they're going to get squashed. I mean, it's a few men and their wives and their kids. You're not going to get to be a nation very quickly without some protection. God brings them to Egypt, and he protects them for 400 years. Now, eventually it goes bad because they end up in slavery. Why? Because God wants to get them out of Egypt. If everything was great in Egypt, Moses shows up and says, hey, let's go somewhere else. And they're like, why? Why would we go somewhere else? We love Egypt. It's great. Right here by the Nile River, everything's given to us. We love the Egyptians. Things are wonderful. But Moses shows up and says, you guys want to get out of here? And they're like, absolutely. Absolutely. We're slaves. We're done here. We don't want to be here. We want something better. And they all get out. That's all God's sovereignty. He's, he's laying it out so that Messiah comes, so that Abraham's line is preserved. We see it later in the Old Testament with Esther. I believe Satan was working, trying to use Haman to wipe out the Israelite nation. He uses his own little pride issue where he gets mad at Mordecai and says, well, I'm going to kill all the nation of Israel for this because this guy won't bow down to me. I think it was demonic. I think it was satanic. God says, no, no, I've already raised up Esther. She's already queen. She's already queen. She's going to take care of this. She's going to make sure that my people are preserved. God's grace is shown in this covenant because he preserves it over and over and over in the Old Testament because he promised the Messiah would come through Abraham. Grace is shown in that God's blessing does not consist merely of earthly comfort in this life. By God's grace, it's not all about the land of Israel. As much as people in the Holy Land would like to make it all about that little piece of land, it's not about that. And Abraham realized that. Hebrews 11, verse 10, talking about Abraham. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Even Abraham looked to something greater than physical land in the promised land. He was looking forward to something heavenly, something greater than anything 
this world could offer. It's by God's grace that he doesn't just bless us with earthly promises. He's given us better promises, heavenly promises. God sh- or God's grace is shown in that he justifies us separate from our works, not because of our works. We don't have time. Uh, maybe we'll come back to it next week. But in Romans chapter 4, it's laid out to us how people get saved. And they, God, Paul uses an Old Testament example. So salvation is not different in the Old Testament. And then it's different in the New Testament. He uses an Old Testament example to explain salvation in the New Testament. We'll look at that more in depth when we look at the New Covenant next week. Abraham's justified by faith. Faith in the Messiah, just like we are. We'll see how that works together when we look at the New Covenant next week. But by God's grace, he justifies us, not by our works. Summary, Christ is seen as the true seed of Abraham. These covenants all point to Christ. This one's no different. Abraham's seeds failed. None of them are worthy of being the Messiah. Just like Noah and his offspring, Abraham's offspring sinful. Children of Israel, sinful. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. To your offspring, who is Christ. The covenant was made to send Christ. The blessings come through Christ. The covenant points to Christ. All right, the Mosaic Covenant. God preserves a people. God preserves a people. We're not going to spend as much time on this one because I think we're all a little bit more familiar with this covenant. I've given you the key passages. Obviously, we don't have time to look at the whole book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy today. Those are the key passages that understanding the Mosaic Covenant, though. The covenant need. Why does God institute this covenant? It's to establish an environment of holy living. In the midst of corruption. To establish an environment of holy living in the midst of corruption. It's not a covenant for Israel to try to keep for salvation. God doesn't trick them into saying, hey, here's what we're going to do now. You obey this and I'll save you kind of thing. It's the same for us. God always gives commands to his covenant people. Demonstrate your faith by being obedient. If he, did, if he thought it were possible to obey the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, and be saved by it, he would have never introduced the sacrifice system right after it. He anticipates failure. He anticipates, you guys can't keep this. I don't expect you to be able to keep this perfectly. I know you're born with a sin nature. But it doesn't change the fact that I expect holiness... I expect you to obey these commands, and I've given you provision for when you fail in keeping these commands. What he was establishing was a way of holy living. Because remember, Israel's been influenced by Egypt and all their false gods and how they worship those false gods. They don't have clear instruction about how to worship Yahweh. And God lays it out for them. He says, I'm going to build a nation out of you guys, and here's what I expect. This is how you're supposed to live as my people. Same way he expects us in the New Testament to live like a covenant people. And he gives us the law of Christ and says, follow these things. Live this way. Walk in the spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. He gives these parameters to them so that he creates a people that are supposed to be living a holy environment. Different than the Canaanite people. Different than the corruption that's around them. Instruction for how a people living under the demonic influence of Egypt were to live before a holy God. They were to obey a law that in some senses were already written on their hearts. 
It's not given to earn salvation, but to restrain sinful behavior, to condemn sin, and to teach them their need for sacrifice. The parties involved, God and Israel. God and Israel. The promise. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. The parties that involved are God and Israel. The promise is that you'll, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. The sign, sacrifices, Sabbath and feast. The expectation is obedience. How does this relate to us? The church is grafted into this people. This relates to us because we're part of this people now. We've been grafted into it. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in the covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds. Write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, "Know the Lord." For they shall all know me, from the least of these to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So God's instituting a new covenant for those that were under the old covenant. We see that we're a part of that in Romans chapter eleven. In Romans chapter 11, verse 11 through 24, we don't have time to look at all of it. Um, start reading in verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus some of and thus save some of them. Skipping down to um, well, we won't take time to read all this, but um, I gave it to you so that you can look at it on your own. It talks about. Uh, Gentiles being grafted into this covenant people of God. So we see again that that merging of the two, this, this understanding of Gentiles and Jews being brought to one covenant people of God. All right, um, two areas of grace, and then we're going to wrap up with the Davidic covenant. Grace is shown in that God increases our knowledge of sin to pave the way for Christ into our hearts. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to increase our knowledge and understanding of sin. It's not to give us a way to earn our salvation. So God's graciously making us aware of our need for Jesus. Romans 3.24, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In four, chapter 4, verse 15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then in Galatians 3.19, We can't be saved by the law. Instead, the law, 
Paul says, well, why then the law? It was added because of our transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Talking about Jesus. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law, it acts as a way to increase our knowledge of sin. It makes us more aware of the fact that we could never do everything that God commands. It makes us reliant on Christ. It acts as a tutor. It teaches us that we need Jesus. And that's by God's grace that he gives us the law that we can see our need for Christ. Grace is also shown in that God keeps the righteous requirements of the law for us. We see that in Romans 8, 1 through 4. The summary for this covenant, Christ comes to save us from the curse of the law. Christ saves us from the curse of the law. Law is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Helps us see our need for the, for the antidote to our problem. This old hymn says, The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sins to die and has no power to justify. To Jesus we for refuge flee, who from the curse has set us free. And humbly worship at his throne, saved by his grace through faith alone. The last covenant we're going to look at today is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. God promises the ultimate ruler. God promises the ultimate ruler. Second Samuel 7, God promises to David that he will send someone from his line to rule and reign forever. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we understand Christ to be the fulfillment of that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The apostles are communicating to the people, you've been waiting for the seed of David. He is here. You killed him. You crucified him. But God has raised him up and set him on the throne in heaven. The covenant need to establish a longing for the perfect sovereign. By instituting this covenant, God creates a longing for the perfect sovereign, the perfect ruler. God ordained kingship. God, God put.
put that in the minds of corrupt people to set up kings because he intended to communicate us to us the truth that Christ is the better king. He institutes kingship to show us what Christ can be for us. God ordains a structure of kingship to increase a desire to man to have the perfect king. Jesus is on the throne now, ruling and reigning forever. We know from Philippians 2 that God has raised him up. He has seated him at the right hand of God. We know that when Stephen was being stoned, he looked up into heaven and he saw Christ on the throne. For all of us good millennialists, we would say that Christ is ruling and reigning there until he returns and the millennial reign is over and he brings with him eternity. Christ is ruling and reigning. He is the king. The parties involved, God and David, and with David, Israel. The parties, God and David and Israel. The promise, a royal son on the throne forever. How does this relate to us? It provides us the king of kings. The Lord of Lords that defeats the great serpent. It provides us the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords that defeats the great serpent. We read in Revelation 19 how Jesus comes to fulfill Genesis 3.15. He is the sovereign ruler. He is the king, the seed of David that comes to defeat the serpent from the garden. The summary, Christ comes as the virgin-born king, the only rightful ruler of God's people. Virgin birth is important because of Jeremiah 22, verse 30, if you want to write that down. Jeremiah 22, verse 30, there is a curse applied to, to David's seed that nobody that comes from him will be able to rule and reign forever. It's like a contradiction. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. The Messiah has to come from David, and now there's this curse that nobody can, can be that guy. The virgin birth is so crucial. Because it allows Christ to have a rightful claim to the throne, but not to inherit that curse upon David's seed. The virgin birth is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. It's not an option. It's not a secondary issue. It's absolutely crucial to the identity of Christ. We celebrated this already through the Lord's Supper, that Jesus is our King of Kings. He is our Lord of Lords. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My encouragement as we've, as we've seen these Old Testament covenants is to see how each one of them points to Christ. They, they, they dictate to us why we do the things that we do. They dictate to us why we have the hope that we have. Not just to increase our knowledge that we now understand these covenants better. It's to point us to worshiping Christ because he fulfills these covenants in ways that Noah couldn't. Moses couldn't, Abraham couldn't, David couldn't. David couldn't produce a seed worth being a ruler forever. His sons failed at being kings. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all these covenants. It leads us to worship. It leads us to see Christ as our sovereign ruler. It ought to increase our hope and desire and anticipation for him to return. And until he returns, we have the mandate to expand his image to the ends of the earth We've got a promise that this earth will endure until Jesus comes back, the Noahic covenant. We have a responsibility to use our time wisely. God says in, in Peter, I'm delaying my return, not because I've forgotten, but because I'm giving men opportunity to repent. We also have the responsibility to lead people to repentance. Let's pray together.
God, we thank you that you have faithfully revealed who you are in your word. We are thankful that while you have a plan in place, you have clued us into that plan. That you have made promises to us so that we can be assured that you are going to do certain things. God, we're thankful that you've included us, that you've grafted us into your covenant people. God, we're thankful that you have chosen to bless all nations through a man like Abraham. God, we're thankful that you're going to raise up a king that's already ruling and reigning now, but that will visibly, physically return to this earth to rule and reign forever with his people. Father, I pray that you would increase our longing for that, that we would be like Abraham who desired a better country. God, help us not to become entangled with the affairs of this world. Help us not to build our kingdom here. Instead, help us to live for our future. God, help us to be about your mandate to expand your image to the ends of this earth. We would be faithful with our time and share Christ with others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.